podcast one production. Over the years, I've done a bit of work for the World Bank. Now, that's one of the big transnational NGOs that works very hard to promote a stable and inclusive financial system for everyone all around the world. And back in 2015, they invited me to join them in Rwanda. Now, I get to Kigali. That's the capital of Rwanda. I'm at a reception dinner, completely jet-lagged, but I'm with a lot of very bright folks, all of whom have their own take on how to bring the benefits of banking to people who have always been considered too poor to need any of the banking services that we all take for granted here in Australia. For example, loans. Why would a poor person need a loan? Wouldn't that make them even poorer? Well, no, not if that loan is for a goat or a cow or something else that can generate cash. Then that loan is a business investment loan, just the same as you'd have here in Australia or over in America or in any other rich country. And people in low-income countries, they need business loans even more than people in rich countries. A modest increase in revenue may be nice for a rich person, but it can make a huge difference for a poor one. And that's why the World Bank had brought us all to Kigali, so we could share what we know about how to bring all of the benefits of banking to people for whom it would make a huge difference. So one of the folks that I met at this reception, he's a founder of a tiny little company known as MCOPA. They have a very simple plan. They want to bring electricity to parts of Africa where there is no infrastructure, where home is a mud and straw hut, where there's no money to string lots of poles to bring Maine's electricity to people who could barely afford it. Instead, MCOPA sells these folks solar kits. So that includes a small photovoltaic panel, a battery, a solar-powered light, and a charger. That solar-powered light, it's more important than you might think. In much of Africa, they still use kerosene lamps for lighting. It works, but it's expensive, and as they burn, those lamps put out a lot of tiny soot that can get deep into the lungs of babies and children. So kerosene is not ideal. An electric light powered by a solar panel, it's practically perfect. No pollution and all the light all night long so the kids can read books and do their studies and learn. And also a charger for a mobile phone. Now, most families in Africa actually have a mobile phone. And if they don't have access to power, it needs to be taken to the market every few days and recharged for a fee. So power and lighting for the mobile, they're important and they cost money. Money that MCOPA realized could be more wisely spent on their solar kit. So a family can sign up with MCOPA, receive the solar kit, and... In a bit of banking that we'd think nothing about but was revolutionary in East Africa, they can pay it off in installments. Every day, the family submits a small payment, just a few pennies, via their mobile. Those pennies, they would have been spent on kerosene, they would have been spent on mobile charging. So it doesn't cost the family anything more, but they get a lot more for it because within a year's time, that panel, it's fully paid off. The family owns it outright, and then all of their electricity is free. Now, MCOPA makes a good profit from this. They are, after all, a business. And it proves a point that the kinds of credit and banking services we take for granted can be really transformative for people who have never had access to them. And if that family does miss several payments, well, MCOPA can remotely disable that panel. So just like a bank loan, the kit can be repossessed for non-payment. 
But the thing is, people always pay because the power MCOPA provides is so valuable to those families. It changes their lives. Now, when I heard that story, I had an aha moment. And that aha moment, it led to this one. Banking used to be boring. All of those years of being stale and flat and profitable, they're giving way to a new kind of banking, one that's still evolving, still incomplete, still in beta. Welcome to the age of the beta bank. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci from the Next Billion Seconds podcast, and together with banking futurist Andrew Davis, we're exploring this new world of neobanks. It's a fancy word meaning new banks, and we're learning how we'll be saving, spending, and investing over the next billion seconds. In this episode of Beta Bank, we're looking at banking for folks around the world who historically haven't had a lot of access to the banking system. Let's begin by welcoming co-host Andrew Davis to the show. Welcome back, Andrew. G'day, Mark. It's so great to be back. Okay, so we have this idea that these small changes, particularly in the developing world, in how people can bank and access money, can have huge transformations. Why is this? Why is that small change so important? Well, actually, Mark, for around 2 billion people in the world, they don't have access to a bank account, nor to financial services. So it's one one person in four or a bit more. Yes, it's such a large number. And they largely depend on cash or even the concept of bartering to exist on a day-to-day basis. And that, that's mind-blowing because bartering is something that we've been doing for thousands of years. But we've had coins for 2,500. So theoretically, bartering should have been obsolete 2,500 years ago, but it's not. But the great news is actually that the number of unbanked in the world is reducing. And we know that in the three-year period from 2014 to 2017, more than 500 million adults opened a bank account for the first time ever in their lives. Wow. So that's a huge, that, that's basically as many people have joined the banking system in a shorter period of time as ever in history then. Exactly. And so what's driving this? Well, there's really two main factors and they're the same ones fanning the flames of neobanks in developed markets. Okay. So the same things that are working here in Australia to drive transformations in the banking system are driving transformations in Africa, in China, in Latin America. Exactly. So the first one of those is that almost everyone on the planet now holds a mobile phone, as you were saying. And it's not necessarily a smartphone. It could be a phone of any shape or form, but it means now that suddenly a lot more people can open and make use of a bank account remotely without having to find and go into a bank branch. Which, again, in a lot of these countries, there just aren't a lot of bank branches. You know, the banks don't have enough money and they don't have enough demand to open branches all over a country because people are poor. That's right. And so from a financial business case perspective for these banks, it doesn't make sense to have branches everywhere because there's not the scale. And so you have that chicken and egg problem, which if you don't have branches, people don't open accounts, but the mobile now removes that chicken and egg problem. Exactly. And the second point is that we see significant amounts of capital being applied to the development of new banking models and financial service capabilities. So you no longer have to have connections on Wall Street to be able to fund a new bank. And that was true because the folks from M. Copa, I, I think, had some put, put some money together. They were university educated, but they were basically just doing it as a tech startup. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, we see money coming from NGOs. We see money coming from the private sector. We see a lot of focus from developed markets into emerging markets to help fast track and amplify 
are the bringing to market of these new capabilities. And one of the things that I saw that absolutely blew me away was a company, I think, again, out of Kenya. And Kenya ends up being the epicenter of a lot of this, because as we learned in episode one, when we were talking to Brett King, M-Pesa, which is the first modern mobile money system, comes out of Kenya. So what is it? 95% of all the Kenyans have an M-Pesa account. Yes. 40% of the volume of the Kenyan economy is passing through Kenya now. And you start to see all of these innovations spread up around it. M-Copa being one of those innovations. But the other one that blew my mind was one called Copo Copo. So Copo Copo handled another problem, which is that SMEs in Kenya didn't really have access to M-Pesa. M-Pesa was designed for individuals, you and I, yes. to be able to exchange money. But it meant I couldn't go down to the corner store and pay for, say, laundry detergent, which is a pretty common purchase in a country like that. You buy a day's worth of laundry detergent, and I'd still need cash for that. So Copo Copo provided a way to be able to get those merchants using M-Pesa. That was great, and it opened up a lot of commerce. But then they realized that they actually had all of this data coming in from all of the merchants and that they could analyze that data and they could actually then build a profile of that business and pre-qualify those businesses for lines of credit and do it for basically no cost where it would have cost a bank 50, 100, $200 to do all of the credit checks for these tiny little businesses, which only need tiny little amounts of money to really affect what they can do. And they put all of this together and I'm looking at this. And when it is explained to me, I realized that it was far more sophisticated than anything we had in <laughs> Australia. Yes, well, because M-Pesa came to market with a specific focus and need, but those transactions are being done electronically, there's suddenly now this ecosystem of opportunity that sprouts up around it. And to your point, perhaps there's a level of advancement and realisation that hasn't yet existed in markets such as Australia. Because in fact, what M-Pesa did was basically provide the banking transaction stream similar to what we saw in the open banking that we learned about in the last episode. Yes, and if there's one thing, admittedly, that telcos are better at than banks, it's understanding the value of data. Yes, and also understanding where all the billing is going. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> okay, so we have this idea now. If I put it to you, one of the things that I've been thinking is that the next great wave of innovation is actually going to come from the developing world. Like Again, this whole problem with the innovators dilemma, with the big banks in the West sort of being big and slow and stale, even though we have all these little neobanks nipping at them, that the next big waves of innovation are going to come out of the developing world. And we already saw Brett King talked about WeBank, yes. which has 180 million customers. That makes it by far the largest bank in the world. It's incredibly innovative in how it offers its services, incredibly innovative about making it just cost an Australian dollar to acquire a customer, all of these things. So do we actually expect that in the Western world, we're going to be overwhelmed with the wave of innovation that's coming from China and from India and from Africa? Well, there are already programs in place that are sponsoring startups out of these emerging markets to come to developed environments like Australia, like Singapore, to test the validity of their business model. And the other thing that's happening, of course, is that we see, you know, the world is a global village. So more and more we see people who are migrating from these markets and they want to bring with them those apps that they're familiar with from Nigeria, from Kenya, from Latin America. And of course, that's also what happened between the UK and Australia, where several of the key people who started neobanks in the UK are now starting new, new banks in Australia. Yes, that's right. All right, in a moment, we'll talk to... 
But let's call him a meta-banker. He's designing the next generation of financial systems for the developing world. This is Mark Pesci, and with co-host Andrew Davis, in this episode of Beta Bank, we're looking at banking for folks around the world who historically haven't had a lot of access to the banking system. And Mark, few people know more about this than our guest, Costa Perrick. Costa is the Deputy Director of Financial Services for the Poor at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, leading the Level 1 initiative, which supports the deployment of payment platforms to serve the poor. He also serves on the boards of philanthropic and technology companies who inspire generosity and purpose in support of the poor. Prior to the Gates Foundation, Costa was the co-founder and leader of InnerTribe, the SWIFT initiative to enable collaborative innovation in the financial industry. So, and SWIFT is, of course, the vast organization that all of the banks connect to so that they can send money between one another. That's right. So Costa joins us from his home in Belgium. Welcome to Beta Bank. Hello, Mark and Andrew. Really glad to be here. Thanks so much. So Costa, Mark and I were talking earlier about the large number of people around the world that are unbanked. So what are the social and economic impacts that stem from that? Yeah, let's let's get a little bit in these numbers first. So the, the World Bank uh, documents estimate that there is 1.7 billion people today who are, as we say, unbanked. So they have no access whatsoever to any financial instrument. Um, So that's a huge number. Um, Most of uh, the 1.7 billion people are spread across Africa and South Asia, but it's a pervasive problem even in um, so-called developed economies. Let's focus just a little bit on Africa to illustrate further the issue. In sub-Saharan Africa, there is more than 400 million adults that have no financial account whatsoever. And if we look further into this number, we notice that 60% of these adults are actually women So not only is there a problem of financial exclusion, uh, but also there is a problem of the gender gap that is very important to consider this. So let's look then at the impacts of this. So the three issues that households or people that are unbanked face are, the first one is that it's actually expensive to be poor because if you want to send or receive money, let's say from the son that works in a big city in, uh, in Africa, uh, the son actually has to take that money, give it to someone, some driver or some, someone who will actually go to the village of his parents to physically uh, hand the money. This is expensive, of course, because the people providing the service may actually ask for a fee etc. You can see how that is. Uh, the second problem is that with using only cash, households and people are exposed to financial shocks that are very difficult to absorb without some form of planning provisioning tool like a financial account. And we know that once people get into poverty, 
it's really not easy at all to get out again of poverty. And you can get out in poverty because of these financial shocks. They can be actually positive shocks, like uh, a marriage in a household that takes a lot of planning and money, or of course, true shocks like uh, illness or getting out of work or, or any of these reasons. And the third problem is really that the unbanked people are totally unconnected from any financial and economic system. And so what would happen when we succeed connecting these 1.7 billion people? Well, there is a report from McKinsey Global Institute that, said, that says that uh, by 2025, if we succeeded connecting all these people, we would add more than... trillion to the GDP of emerging markets. Mm, So Costa, and that was, I think, the point about the significance of women being in that pool of unbanked, to me, is a very important point because from my experience in emerging markets, it's not uncommon to see the woman of the household being the one who's trying to manage the finances of the family. Yes. So tell me then, how are banking services in emerging markets evolving and is technology helping to make that happen? Yes. So um, in, a, in a way that is typical of the Gates Foundation, technology is an important ingredient in solving this problem. And in fact, basic innovation uh, has the basic innovation that can serve the purpose of connecting the poor Uh, has already happened 10 years ago with the emergence in Africa, in fact, uh, and specifically in Kenya, of what's called mobile money. The most notable system perhaps written about would be M-Pesa in Kenya or Bcash in Bangladesh. Mobile money allows you to send and receive money exactly like you send and receive a text message with very little prerequisite and essentially just knowing the phone number of the person you want to send money to. And so that's the basic innovation that has happened and that demonstrated two basic things. One is that it is possible for financial providers to serve the poor profitably, albeit in a totally different model than the traditional banking model. And indeed, In most instances, you can see that the key stakeholders in provision of financial services for the poor are non-banks, telecommunication companies that uh, step in or fintech companies that step in. And so they have demonstrated that it is possible to serve the poor and make money in this. And that's an important point because if the private sector companies did not make money in this, then we would never achieve this goal. The second thing that they have demonstrated is that it is actually helpful for the poor to obtain a mobile wallet with very little prerequisites. And it it demonstrated how the positive impact of this can be achieved in terms of absorbing shocks, as I was mentioning, in terms of allowing the people to save time every day, but also, and perhaps most importantly, showing how additional services beyond the basic 
wallet can be provided, such as uh, solar pay-as-you-go systems in East Africa, where you can pay for electricity from a solar battery uh, every day using very small uh, amounts. Costa, the Gates Foundation does such amazing work. And of course, it's guided by the belief that every life has equal value. And I know your area of focus is on the financial services for the poor program. But can you tell us a little bit about that and about your level one project? So indeed, uh, the financial services for the poor strategy, the Gates Foundation aims squarely to connect the 1.7 billion uh, remaining people to a an adequate system and we the way we work is essentially helping stakeholders in countries and regions to organize themselves and uh, build payment platforms that can connect these uh, people so the stakeholders we work with are governments central banks private sector entities so pretty much the entire ecosystem in the countries and regions. The basic innovation, as I mentioned, is already 10 years old. The new method today is essentially aimed at accelerating the adoption of uh, mobile money, or as we say, digital financial services. And the innovation is all about interoperability. One of the issues that uh, we observe today is that there are, while helpful, mobile money systems tend to uh, get into silos where the sender and recipient of the money have to be connected on the same network. And that's an impediment to the growth of the market. So most of our efforts today are uh, focused on helping governments, central banks, and private sector entities build digital payment platforms on a national or even regional level uh, that allow a person who has a wallet to now be truly part of the full economy, uh, being able to receive a salary from a bank account, being able to send money to wallets that are not on the same network that she is, being able to pay school fees, to pay for electricity, so to be really fully connected. The level one project principles describe how uh, or the basic characteristics of what a payment platform should be to serve the poor. And uh, for people interested, I suggest reading on uh, level1project.org website. The principles essentially have to do with instant payments, push payments that are irrevocable uh, because what we want is a digital system that mimics cash. When I send money to someone else, the, my wallet is immediately debited, their wallet is immediately credited, and the transaction is irrevocable. And you can see how that mimics cash and how people can uh, trust into such a system. The other set of principles relate to how the payment platform is managed and organized. And essentially, we see these platforms as being utilities. So there are companies that don't seek to make profit, but uh, more like a utility to operate efficiently and to 
collect enough revenue to uh, be uh, sustainable over time. Uh, one innovation that we have also commissioned the development of a software that is now open source that's called Moja Loop, and that is an open source implementation of the level one principles that make it very easy for a community, financial community in a country to embark on this interoperability journey and deploy these systems very easily. If you want to know more about Mojaloop, I suggest going to mojaloop.io um, for basic information and for techno te technologists listening to us to dive into the code if they want. So Costa, with all this great work underway, where do you think we'll be five or more years from now? And is the world going to be a better place as a result? So obviously, on the side of the financial services for the poor strategy, we hope that, for example, in Africa, in five years, a woman in Morocco will be able to send money instantaneously to a man in Zimbabwe by connecting national systems that are being built today. I want to really emphasize a couple of projects going on today that uh, demonstrate how Africa is moving on this front. For example, there is a project driven by the Central Bank of Tanzania to deploy a digital payment platform on a, on a, a country level. There is a project going on driven by the Central Bank of the YMU region the Western African Economic and Monetary Union, the eight countries sharing the same currency, doing the same. So you can see how pockets of digital payment platforms are now being implemented, and the next natural step will be to interconnect all of this together. Doing that will enable these essential connection of the 1.7 billion new customers into the economy and these new customers truly represent an incredible business opportunity for new products and services as i was mentioning earlier to thrive into this new market so that's the vision we are hoping to achieve with our partners in africa and asia well, what a tremendous goal. That's such great news to hear about. And Costa, we thank you so much for being part of this episode. And it's been a pleasure to have you on Betabank. A pleasure as well. Thank you so much. This figure that Costa quoted, you know, that 1.7 billion people who are basically unbanked or underbanked, when they come into the banking system, that they increase GDP by 3.7 trillion and that this is probably mostly going to happen not because of banks, but because of non-banks delivering digital financial services. That, in fact, when we look into the future across the world, that form of banking looks really different than anything we know in Australia. It is because, again, in these markets, the phone means so much to these people. The phone, to many of these people, is almost the first time that they've had exposure to technology. And to the kinds of power that connectivity brings. Correct. And the beauty is that by bringing these people into the financial services ecosystem, even if it's not by a bank, 
it lifts their contribution to the economy because, as Costa said, they start to save money, they start to think about the future, maybe then they get access to insurance products, their earnings, their quality of living goes up, they start to contribute at a tax level. So there's this massive ripple effect that is to the benefit of everyone. And I think it's really one of the first things Costa said, one of the things we need to remember is that it is expensive to be poor, that in fact, poor people pay more for most services in terms of a percentage of their income than any of us would find tolerable, right? Yes, unfortunately, there's a lot of organizations in the market that target the poor in a bad way because they realize the poor don't have a lot of choice and the poor do live day to day and they'll do whatever's needed to get access to the goods and services they need to survive that day. And I mean, you know, payday advance loans are the sort of classic example that we'd be familiar with, but there's many other versions of that, particularly in the developing world. And so it comes back to that idea that in fact, these small changes that are not a lot, it's not a lot of technology, Costa kept on coming back to the fact that the revolution already happened and it happened 10, 12 years ago and it happened in Kenya with M-Pesa and then of course in Bangladesh with Bcash. And so in fact, what we're doing is we're simply taking advantage of that revolution and that it has the capacity to not have to do a lot, but to mean a huge amount to a lot of people. Mm, And isn't it great to think that these building blocks are already there and they've been there for many years, perhaps, you know, under our nose, but here now, I guess, you know, through the the will of a lot of great people outside of these emerging markets and the support of capital and all this new technology, they're able now to create this recipe for success. And I actually do think, looking at the Gates Foundation, that in a hundred years time, Gates is going to be remembered less for being a monopolist, which he was, and much more for being a person who really figured out some easy levers to really help the world become a better place. And this idea that Costa also threw at us that, in fact, these banks that are going to be serving poor people are going to look more like utilities, that they're going to be organized for the public good, which is not how we think of banks today. Is that one of those ideas that will also perhaps come in and affect the way we do banking here in the West? Well, yes. uh, We've already seen some neobanks in different markets around the world that are coming to life around a social cause. And they're, I guess, uh, trying to identify how do I associate with a niche of the population that has certain values that are perhaps important to me as a business and important to me in terms of my team and founders. So, That's the great thing now, just like uh, perhaps pre-pay TV, we only had five channels to watch on the TV. Now we've got 500 channels to watch and we can choose a different channel depending on the every mood of the, each minute of the day. Or in my case, a different banking app because goodness knows they have been proliferating <laughs> on my phone like crazy, particularly as I have been working on this series with you. This has been an amazing journey. We started out with Brett King. We learned about the amazing sort of genesis of this in the sort of GFC days and how it really was a clarion call to a certain group of people to really think what banking was. And then we we talked to Dom Pym, creator of UpBank, about what retail banking looks like. And then Alex Twig and really 
about how business banking is in some sense coming back to its roots, but then also leveraging technology. And then we talked to Rob Bell about what open banking will mean in terms of giving us control over our data. And now finally, Costa Peric about what it means for the rest of the world and how that's actually going to come back and influence us. This is this is a huge topic. And, and you know, it's funny because Alex in his interview said, oh, banking is boring. And I'm like, no, no, banking is really interesting. Banking is in transition. Mm. And for a good part of the world's population, banking is a whole new concept. And it creates opportunity and freedom and liberation. And I think that's something that we don't appreciate well enough. Andrew, it has been an enormous pleasure to work on this series with you. I have learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mark. It's been a fantastic opportunity for me. I appreciate uh, being able to do this with you. And hopefully we'll get the opportunity to do it again. Now, if you want to learn more about the incredible developments in banking around the world, whether that's M-Pesa or M-Copo or Bcash or Costa Peric's Level 1 project, which he's doing with the Gates Foundation, cruise on over to our website at betabank.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn, as much as you want. That's betabank.show. To listen to any of my other podcasts, Cryptonomics or The Next Billion Cars or The Next Billion Seconds, just open up your favorite podcasting app and search for Mark Pesci. That's P-E-S-C-E Pesci. Big thanks to Costa Peric for coming onto our show. Betabank was written and presented by Mark Pesci. And Andrew Davis. Created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Matt Nikolic. Theme music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, search Mark Pesci Betabank, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the new Podcast One Australia app. Thank you for listening.